Hello and welcome to this Strategy Analytics podcast in which we share some of our research and analysis from our ongoing coverage of major technology and consumer issues. My name is David Mercer and I'm VP and Principal Analyst at Strategy Analytics and today I'm joined by my colleagues Arlene Denke, Joy Ganvik and Matt Hester, all of whom work in our Consumer Insights Division. They've been carrying out some fascinating research over the past few months exploring how people's attitudes and behaviours have changed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. In this discussion, we're going to hear about what companies are learning from the pandemic and how they're responding to the needs of the post-pandemic consumer. Welcome to all of you. Arlene, perhaps you could kick things off by telling us a little about the research you've been doing. Yeah, well, this research uh, includes uh, three markets initially, US, UK, and China. And uh, for the May wave, so we've been tracking this for the past three months now, starting in March. And for the May wave, we actually included Germany to get a better spread of European kind of sentiment. A a lot of this, we often get asked by uh, clients, like, what do you know about what's going on? What's consumers thinking about? Uh, the pandemic, how are things shaping up? What impact does this have on my product and services? What do you think I should be doing? Should I be doing anything differently? So this um, really kind of like that took kind of the inspiration of like launching a study that really focuses on understanding uh, consumer sentiments. And we cover core questions around COVID-19, but then we also have specific topics on, for instance, products ranging from smartphones. Uh, We talked about kind of food products. We also talk about restaurants, travel, tourism, a whole gamut of different products, including healthcare related topics. So uh, it's been a a broad set and we covered uh, about 13,000, over 13,000 interviews for the past three months. Fairly good spread of consumers and topics in this this research. If you look at that whole wave of uh, research, what what stands out for you the most in terms of the the key findings, and what's what has surprised you particularly from from what you've seen? Yeah, there, there's certainly a number of them. The one thing that I think that really stands out and is just mind-boggling is the impact of the pandemic on consumers' everyday lives. Right, it's really kind of um, you know the the fact that uh, choices that we make every day. I read somewhere that people make about thirty five thousand conscious choices every single day. Well, this pandemic has thrown out the door those thirty five thousand choices. Right, you wake up in the morning and you say, "I'm gonna have, will I have tea or coffee?" Sorry, it's gonna have to be tea because. I couldn't find coffee in my grocery, right? Or things like you make a decision, you're going out and uh, you take public transport or you drive your car and you say, oh, I can't do that, right? Um, I, I'm at home, I can't leave, but even if I need to, to make those essential trips, I couldn't. Things like enjoying your Friday evening in my favorite Mexican restaurant. And just, just get out of the house. Can't even do that. And for some people, this is a life or death decision. And, you know, you think about all the choices, the pandemic, the impact it has. I certainly joined the 40% of the people 
you know, it's probably much bigger than that, who say my life has completely changed forever as a result of the pandemic. And, and it's really, to me, that's kind of mind boggling. Okay, so Joy, what, what is, from your point of view, what, uh, what have you seen from the study that uh, surprises you the most? I think the biggest thing for me is that there just isn't a single post-pandemic consumer. All the data, we did some really cool um, latent class cluster analysis to segment the consumers um, across the markets. And um, there's not one way people are coming out of this. Um, there's, depending upon who you live with and what your job circumstances are and the kind of person you are and all those things, what you're getting out of this pandemic or how you're going to come out the other side of it is really going to be different depending upon a lot of factors. So there's not one shift that's going to happen. There's not like one thing you can do and suddenly that addresses all the needs of the marketplace. It's really going to be very, very dependent upon the who you're, who the people are and how different people in the same product category even um, have experienced this and how they feel about it. We can get onto some of that detail, I guess, during the discussion, just to talk about some of those segments. So, Matt, anything else to add on uh, what are the amazing findings from all of this work? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was quite striking the extent to which people are sort of reviewing the brands that they're using and buying. So, you know, typically in most categories, people buy brands on quite a habitual basis. So they don't tend to think about it too much, um, particularly for sort of lower engagement, lower ticket items. And f for them, um, normally it's a case of where you just buy what you normally buy. But, you know, we've seen quite substantial uh, shifts in, or the rather sub substantial increases in the people, proportion of people that are actually changing the brands that they're buying. So that could be people that are stopping or starting using some brands. So, now we found up to, I think it was one in five, you know, half of the consumers that we spoke to in China have either started or stopped using brands. Um, wasn't quite so high in some of the other markets, but not far off. It was, you know, getting on for a third to, to, to um, even more in some cases. So a lot of people have actually reviewed the brands that they're, they're using. Now, in some instances, it's going to be due, due to availability. But more importantly, it's really that... Um, there's so many other factors now which are influencing this. So it's, you know, the, the way that you communicate uh, your brand and, and, and how effective you are in actually engaging with people in these times, because the way people make decisions, as, as Arlene was saying, is is changed now because they, they've got no choice. You know, it's, it's literally like, well, I, I have to change what I buy. Um, I, I, I'm having to sort of review my choices and that has a massive impact on on brands and they have to kind of stay on top of that change in order to stay relevant to consumers again maybe go into that in more detail i'd be interested to talk about you know which brands have been doing well which not so well and 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 the reasons why because i think there's again lots of unanswered questions there i mean the thing when i looked at the data as as, as you guys were saying the, the the difference in the impact on different groups is is amazing i mean just to summarize quickly and you correct me if i'm wrong but I mean, it looks like basically if you're, you know, less wealthy, if you've got kids, if you're female and, and you live in a city, then, you know, you really have been struggling. And, and I think that applied across all of the all of the countries. And then by contrast, if you're more affluent, not surprisingly, older, maybe no kids and you live in a rural area, um, it's it seems like almost there's been almost no impact. I mean, in some cases from 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 the pandemic, I mean, you see comments like, well, we've carried on more or less as normal, you know, 
In fact, if anything, in some way, things have improved for some people, amazingly enough. So it's just a, a, a huge spectrum of um, different reactions that we've seen. So, I mean, is that first of all, is that a fair summary? And then perhaps you want to dive into that and talk about these different groups. That is a fair summary. Uh, and, and there's a one little data point that I find amazing. It's in, in the U.S., although it's um, and it's not quite as high in some other markets, but more than one in 10 people think um, this is a conspiracy or isn't really real. So that like says a lot and, and it does vary depending upon where you're at. But if we, if we sort of take that to dive into those segments I was talking about earlier, one of the things we found is there's this group of people who is like very casual about the pandemic. They're pretty much going about their daily life. Like you were just saying, uh, they're, they know it's out there. Maybe some believe it, maybe some don't, but they're pretty much uh, living their life as normal. Is it because these people, um, I mean, they haven't seen any personal impact. They don't know anybody who's, you know, that, COVID that's or... part of it. That's part <clears throat> of it. Um, they are, and they're, but they're also tuning it out a little bit. They're more disengaged. They're purposely not trying to get information about it. They're skimming past information or actually thinking some of it doesn't, isn't really relevant or real. Um, so they they just don't think it's that big of a deal. They're more likely to say this is not really much worse than the flu. So they're taking it in as a much more casual um, situation. They're driving the same. They're trying to do go about their daily lives as much as normal, and they're not too worried about it, uh, generally speaking. And on, on the flip side, there's another group of consumers who are also going about their daily lives quite much, but they're super tuned into it. So they're really worried about it. They think it's super, super serious, but um, they're almost like rolling the dice a little bit. They're more likely to be be considered an essential worker. So they've got to go out. They're more likely to try to do some of their regular activities like um, out exercise and doing outdoor stuff and blah, blah. But they're super tuned in. Like they almost have too much information about it. Um, they're taking precautions, but they're still sort of doing everything that they would normally be doing. And if you think about like, those are maybe, those are two groups, they're both still doing a lot of stuff, but they're on really two ends of the spectrum when you think about their mental state, you know, and you think about what emotions they're experiencing. Um, and it's difficult, to, it's difficult to imagine that that second group, what actually must be going on in their minds. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> everything's changed in a way and yet nothing has changed. I mean, how do, how yes. do you reconcile those <laughs> Yeah, that, that's it exactly. And they are a little bit younger because they're working a little bit more. You know, they're um, maybe they feel like maybe they can get by with with it a little bit more as well. But it's it's kind of like a roll of the dice is how I keep thinking about that group. And 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 they're they do think it's very serious. They're not disregarding any of it at all. Uh, but they're out there. The other two groups that are really interesting um, that were identified in the segmentation is one of them. Is I think I put myself in the category, sort of the responsible, listen to what they're telling you to do people. So I don't think like, it's more like trying not to be over the top on everything and maybe not be completely um, 100% isolated, but basically trying to stay at home, always wear a mask. If you don't go to public places, you know, the, that kind of a, a group. Uh, and then again, you think about purchase behaviors and all the things that that influences. 
you're you're when you're not wanting to go out, you're not wanting to do things. So you'll have some different behaviors. And then the the last group we found is a group that actually cares way more about the economy than about the medical situation associated with the pandemic. So their concerns are all economic, economic like nationally or globally, but very personally as well. Uh, and so their immediate worries, their immediate focal areas, their, the trade-offs that they make, all those kinds of things are much more centered around, um, I've got to figure out how to make ends meet. I've got to figure out how to, we, the, I'm so worried about the economy. I need to make sure all these local businesses don't go out of business. Um, and that's a bigger concern for some people, for a fairly, actually a big group of people. That was That segment is like a third of the population. Um, who are really, really thinking, yeah, the, the pandemic is serious. Um, I have to be careful, a little bit careful about my health, but I'm way more worried about, about the, the economic aspects of it. So maybe that group, and it is the biggest group, maybe they're most ready to try and get back to normal, I guess, as, as the lockdowns ease and so on. Is that is that reasonable to assume as well, that yeah, I think that's what's happening. Um, you see a lot of people going out and about as soon as things are, as soon as um, a, an area or location starts to open things back up again. Um, these are the guys that are right away trying to get things back going again, I think. Ali, did you want to? Yeah, um, just, just going back to your earlier question around the profile you know, looking at generally, they are people who are less affluent or really impacted by the pandemic. But there are certain interesting things, um, like we, we did an analysis of those uh, who are likely to switch service providers for a lower cost plan. And I was expecting exactly what you're saying that, oh, it's going to be those who are looking for like the real cheap plans, right? And and maybe not have enough funds to, to spend uh, higher end uh, plans. But what's interesting here is that we found they tend to be kind of skewed towards the high income. And maybe that's because, oh, those people who already are on maybe prepaid uh, on a $20 per month plan is not willing to switch providers anymore because that's as low and as cheap as they can get. But it, it's interesting to see that, you know, there's the question around, is it really truly just the cost or is it the value of what they can get out, the best value that they can get out of the a carrier? So uh, these people tend to be owners of iPhone, high-end Samsung phones. They're obviously, um, you know, urban dwellers as well, as you pointed out. I was surprised by that, that there's, there's certainly this high-end who can, seems like they can afford, but they're still looking for that best value, um, especially at this time, with everybody being worried about finances, economy, as Joy pointed out, will I have a job next, tomorrow, next week, right? So I think everyone's trying to contain their expenses. Yeah, I'd echo that as well. When we looked at some of the um, brands that, well, the extent to which people were sort of stopping or starting using brands, it did index, certainly in the, the US and the UK, it indexed more towards um, higher income groups. Um, and in fact, I think that applied to, to, some, to, to both China and Germany as well, actually. So we did see it skew towards higher income groups. And in the US and UK, it was also 
younger people. I mean, the younger people, I think, may be, you know, they have other reasons why they might want to, you know, choose different brands or stop using brands or start using other brands. You know, there's a there's a broader range of reasons why people do that. But certainly we, we found that as well. It's the higher income people that were the ones that were more likely to be sort of chopping and changing the brands that they use. So, I mean, we're, we're into the realm now of, you know, the, the business impact of these crazy times. How much of this change do we think is going to stick and, and how much do businesses need to prepare for uh, over the longer term? I have a little tiny little anecdote uh, with Walmart. We did some data to look at how people feel about specific brands. And one of the things that we saw is Walmart has gained in um, positive impression of the brand significantly as much as Netflix or Amazon or Google. And so Walmart's really taken a step up. And I had this little personal experience um, never really shopping online uh, with Walmart or I should say for groceries online. What they did very fast, instantly almost is, and I guess it was in the works, but what, what's happened is you can buy your groceries online, you drive there, the app knows where you are, it tells what they know what parking spot you're in when you pull in and the guy shows up and puts it in in the back of your car and literally it's as touchless as is possible um, if you're bringing groceries into your house so to me like how does walmart who i have always thought had the worst possible website in the planet um, suddenly make this huge leap like i want to do this i hate grocery shopping i want to keep doing that now you know so i think there's going to be some behaviors that people have had to adopt during the pandemic that they're thinking wow in fact we did some qualitative research too and we saw that where even though there's all these inconveniences and all these things that aren't going well there's a few things that people are like wow that's pretty darn convenient i don't know why i wasn't doing that before i should keep doing that i think there's going to be a lot of just matt what are your thoughts on the brand yeah you're right it's um i, I think the supermarkets it was quite interesting uh, in that we I, i've seen some figures related to the um improvement in favorability towards the major supermarkets in the uk which is where i'm based but um yeah it, it, the response that they initiated uh, to the situation was interesting because i think that people are looking for obviously people still still need to get access to food they still need to sell an important category groceries and it's, it's not one which you can sort of do without but um the, the major supermarkets in the UK certainly responded positively and that they started pushing out communications very quickly. They started to try and uh, improve their operations very quickly. They started to recruit lots of people. And, you know, clearly there was lots of demand for products. But um, I think they were able to respond pretty you know, well to the situation, do the very best they could and try and convey that in the messaging they were putting out about getting products to people and enabling them to shop. Um, but they, it was interesting that their favorability of the major supermarkets, I think, grew at the expense of some of the discounters so like Aldi and Lidl here in the UK. So they were actually able to move quickly. And this is the thing, really, with one of the things that people are looking for. I mean, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, people are sort of rational in that they don't necessarily expect brands to solve the, all of their problems, but they do expect them to be able to help them in some way and do something which is going to show that they do actually care about their customers and i think that we saw some really good examples of where brands have done that where it you know from a sort of practical perspective you have examples of 
uh, Admiral car insurance giving money back to its customers because they're not driving so much and therefore their risk profiles have changed. And, you know, from Admiral's perspective, they're paying out less. So, you know, it makes perfect sense. Why not just give back money to your customers because you're not paying out as much? So shouldn't it, that be reasonable? And they did that and that was great for them. And Admiral, sorry, Matt, but I believe Admiral actually volunteered. There was no, is that yeah. right? There were no, yeah, there was no obligation. It was just completely out of the blue. I mean, how many companies yeah. ever just voluntarily give money back? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> There's other things that companies companies have done as well. So I think Dixon's car phone in the UK, um, you know, in the consumer electronics category, that would have suffered, you know, has been suffering, not as bad as some other categories, but it still has suffered. But, you know, they were trying to help customers by, you know, enabling video calls with sales assistants. They were making recommendations about how to get better Wi-Fi in the garden. You know, they were sort of looking and understanding what the issues were and doing something about it. And then you have other brands that maybe don't have a sort of a director relationship with their customers, but still wanted to show that they cared. So you had an example, I think, of Burberry, which, you know, said it was um, cutting its senior staff salaries it was um, not following any staff and it was going to produce protective equipment for health workers uh, because it had the capabilities of producing those sort of products. So th there's lots of examples that, you know, th these may be categories where um, there may be turmoil or problems or you know, people not able to buy or not, not willing to buy as much as they were before. But if brands actually respond positively, take action and do something which, you know, resonates with people and shows that they care, then they can come out of this better. So I think, again, what's interesting here is that these are, as you say, actions taken by businesses in a public way, normally, obviously, as opposed to sort of purely a communications platform. Because my understanding from the advertising industry, as you, as you well know, advertising is the first thing to be cut in any you know, general recession, never mind something like this. And, and the advertising it's, itself has clearly had a really tough time. So brands and businesses generally were... They, they, everything's cut off and then they're sitting there thinking how on earth do we even begin to communicate with people in this environment so that's a, that's almost a separate issue to mm. let's actually start to take action to help our customers which is not it's not it's not a branding exercise per se as i would say although maybe that's behind it i don't know i think you know one of the, the brands would have done is to sort of reevaluate the type of advertising they do so things you know big brand positioning brand building brand equity based campaigns would have been parked a little bit you know i would have thought if, you know fewer brands are doing that and then they're trying to focus as i said their communications on you know giving people information that they need you know it, it can go both ways we saw at the start of the pandemic certainly a lot of brands were just pushing out messages about we care we're all in this together you know that kind of thing which people there was fatigue uh, you know, as a result of that, people just saw it too many times. And they were just thinking, I, I just don't want to know anymore. Just just tell me something that helps. So you then get to the, you know, brands thinking quite clearly, well, there was an example, I think, of Birdseye in the UK, uh, who makes frozen foods, recognising that obviously right now the home is so important to people. It's the centre of people's lives right now. And they decided they needed to communicate more about the value that their products bring to the home and that they're always, they've been associated with, cooking at home and they've been associated with family life and, and by re-emphasizing those those products instead of others you know perhaps minimizing their spend on sort of uh, advertising related to a broader range of products they focus on the sort of brands that people are most familiar with and which are most strongly associated with home life you know they've taken tactical decisions about what they 
what they advertise. And, you know, again, this is a, a more effective way of prioritizing your advertising spend than just continuing what you were doing beforehand or, you know, just deciding, well, we're going to pull advertising completely because that also uh, has a detrimental effect as well. Yeah, just like uh, we did some qualitative uh, sessions and some of our consumers really articulated this quite well when we asked them, what are your expectations of the brands um, and companies that uh, you use? And that word authenticity really came across consistently. And it doesn't have to be just like, you know, the campaigns or ads that they see. They want brands to be present, right, in their local communities and really reaching out and helping people who are in need. And I think that's where the whole point about the challenge to, to companies is like, how do you sustain this? It's not just a matter of like, oh, do I put out a brand there or a campaign that's out? They're very empathetic and we understand mm -hmm. your needs. It's like, we're actually doing something. We're helping out people. And I think, again, I go back to that word authenticity, being authentic out there. People can see through that. So I think that's that's an important thing to remember for companies, large or small, right? Yeah. I want to come back to this point about retailing. Again, we, we, a lot of the brands you've talked about are retailers at the end of the day. And I mean, retailing in general has been in, you know, flux, I think, is putting it mildly. You know, <laughs> turmoil is probably a more realistic description in some sectors, at least. But that's before the pandemic. And now, you know, we're already seeing, you know, closures and, bankruptcies and so on with, with major retailers. But some of the names you've mentioned are clearly responded very quickly and, and you know, were very active. Uh, but this whole business of changing retail behavior, you know, the move to online is nothing new. We all know about that. Again, looking at the data you've seen, what, what sticks from all of this? I mean, a lot of people have been trying online retail, especially online groceries, perhaps for the first time over recent months. Are they showing signs that that's now going to become a permanent behavior? Are they ready to get back to the stores? If stores like Walmart can do such a great job of the, you know, pick up and we'll stick it in the trunk for you type of type of service, then, then but I guess that is sort of partly online. That's kind of a hybrid model. But I mean, how, how do you see this whole thing again, moving forward? What, what are these, which of these changes are going to, uh, going to rest with us? So people, a lot of people are Amazon customers, right? Mm. I think what we've seen is not just, you know, using the same kind of uh, online channels, but the frequency of doing that and the kind of products that they're now buying from it. I, again, I go back to uh, the qualitative sessions that we did because it really puts kind of, you know, the stories and make this numbers more real. And, and somebody said, oh my gosh, I buy electronics from Amazon but never have I ever gotten a package from Amazon three times a week. And these are for basic essential things at home, right? Some of it are my groceries and some are just fresh produce. And I really love that experience. So again, it goes back to, I think something Joy mentioned earlier, like, is this a positive experience that people will see kind of like see themselves doing it more permanently? Joy. Yeah, if you if you tie that together with what Matt was saying earlier about the tangible um, things that brands are doing, because I think that's where this starts to become really important is we've got we've got this shifting behavior. Um, we've got brands that 
Arlene was saying, you know, they, they, people want them to be there and be present. And, and so like that really figuring out what your target consumers need and then doing some tangible things to address it, as Matt was mentioning earlier, I think is what's going to have to happen because if we want some things we maybe want to be sustainable, right there, it's a good business model. There's, it's better, better uh, cost structure, whatever, right? So there's certain things we, we would like to be that. If they're relevant, if we can put them in the context of something that's relevant to these different consumers and their new mindsets. Um, for, for example, within a retail store, one of the things we, we ask people is, how, what are you going to do when this is over? Like, what are the things you want to go back and do? And shopping is one of them, by the way. So that's one of, their, one of the things that they would really like to get back to doing. But they're not going to feel the same way about shopping. And not everybody's going to feel the same way about shopping in different places. And so however we can, like, accommodate this desire to see and touch and feel and run across things in aisles um, in a physical space as you go through, but in a very safe feeling environment. I think, again, from an innovation perspective, this is a time for retail to really rethink physical retail, even really rethink how that relationship works with with consumers as we go through. Yeah, I, I heard an interesting example. I think it was um, one of the food manufacturers saying how, given that they are not able to get their sort of their full range in store it kind of prompts them to actually think about well how can they stay relevant and and try and sort of sustain sustain sales and, and look for new opportunities and what they realized is if is if um what they can do now is look to kind of partner with other brands potentially so there was i think it was an example of one of the food manufacturers was saying well let, let's use the concept of a big night in now Ordinarily, this company, which sells one type of uh, food product, you know, would find it quite difficult to be considered in a um, as one of the items that you might have on a big night in. You know, uh, you might just go for a pizza, or you might just go for something that's easy to cook. You know, and if you're thinking about buying that in the supermarket, you might find I think it was frozen food again. You know, you might find well, I'm not really going to think about buying frozen food when I'm thinking about a big night in. But if they're thinking about online and they're thinking about well, we can actually address this opportunity now on this occasion because we can partner with some other brands and say, well, you can you can now buy um, online a kind of a complete night in. So our product is one of the items in the big night in, but because we partnered with, you know, provide a, a company selling vegetables or a company selling drink or a company selling snacks or, or whatever it might be, they're able now to address this occasion and think that they're thinking creatively about how they can actually use the situation to their advantage and address an opportunity for an occasion which they weren't currently or previously catering to and now do it with the online tools. That is you know, a good example of where companies are having to sort of think creatively about what they can do. And that's something I'm watching very closely. Perhaps we should, uh, it's been, you know, really fascinating. I think we've touched on a lot of interesting questions. Perhaps just to begin to wrap up, uh, what, what would be interesting, I think, is for, for businesses particularly, is to understand what, what are the major consumer questions, maybe one or two questions which you think they should be looking at as they plan for the post-pandemic era. Again, coming back to how are consumers changing, what should they be aware of, and how do they begin to understand what those, what those changes mean? Arlene, do you want to sure. kick off with that one? Let me start off. Um, I started the conversation about kind of all the choices that people are not able to make, right? And I think that's certainly is very true because we we think about the underlying kind of 
reason for people making or not able to make the choices, it's all about fear, right? It's because, as I said, it is a life or death decision. And uh, I think it is very important for companies to understand how much that fear factor contributes now to people's decision process. And, and that's something we have never really thought about. I mean, emotions as part of a purchase driver, a choice for one product or a brand has always been part of it. But there are more positive emotions like, oh, I absolutely, this is a brand I love. This is a feature that will bring me prestige or what. And, and in most cases, you know, price has always been kind of the more rational figure driver of choice. Now, understanding how that fear contributes or is an element in this choice is going to be challenging, right, for companies. And that's not just for the short term. There's some of behaviors and some of these situations we're in will continue a year from now because a lot of our consumers are saying it's going to take at least a year for things to be back to normal. And so um, we use this technique, latent class modeling, strategy analytics. It's something that we've used for many, many years now, uh, but it really puts it in a different light, right? The whole factor of fear, companies, industries have used that. That's why we have travel insurance, right? Because, oh, I'm worried that I travel and I suddenly kind of like get it sick or what, I want to make sure that I'm fine. Or fear of, you know, like security systems, right? This has really boomed recently because, oh, there's suddenly a lot of crimes in my area. I want to feel secure. So now understanding, again, going back to my point on like, how do you factor that in, in the uh, choices that people are able to make? And this, this technique really allows us, it is get, getting into those latent kind of factors that drive people understanding what those are. I think that's a challenge for companies. And uh, we throw out our whole kind of traditional way of understanding choice, purchase path, all of those things are going to be, they will have to evolve, right? So one one important thing for companies to consider. Certainly a whole new area for many businesses, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Joy, did you want to add something? Uh, yeah, I think for me, the other fact, because I'm 100% in agreement with what Arlene was just talking about, um, but the other two things that are impacting businesses that you might not think they're going to impact, people are less mobile now, and all the signs are that they are likely going to remain less mobile. Um, a lot of companies are um, trying to shift to more of a work-at-home um, approach, even for people who've always traditionally gone into an office. Obviously, not everyone can do that, but we're seeing lots of reluctance for people to travel. Even in products you might not think might would be impacted by a less mobile environment, I think everything's going to be impacted by a less mobile environment. And so when you, you like understanding that that linkage and the connection between what you're providing to consumers, whatever you're offering, whatever your solutions or devices or whatever your your area is, um, how do you shift the benefits of that in a less mobile world, regardless of, again, of what your, what your um, category is? So I think that's uh, one thing that I haven't, people aren't really starting to think about yet. It's obvious when you talk about travel, 
But but what about cell phones? What about smartphones? What about, oh, my favorite example is snack bars. We do a lot of research in CPG and there are products that people traditionally took on the road that are being consumed less now. How do we shift our value propositions and change it doesn't mean the products necessarily need to, to change. Maybe they do sometimes, but how do we really make those relevant in this sort of new environment? And then the other side of that is um, the biggest barrier people have to working from home is all about social and communication aspects. Um, and it's true, like when we looked at w what people want to go do after the pandemic, it's a lot of that is social. <laughs> I want to see my family and friends. I want to go to a restaurant so I can be with other people. Let, let's assume for a minute that this is a long-term you know, mindset for some, some of these consumers we know are going to, this is going to have a long, long, long term impact on them, right? So how do we now make like how do we support this need for more social interaction when we're in a more closed in environment uh, and so and any brand could do that regardless of the category it's more thinking about how do my products now how can i support this this consumer need with my product right. space matt what about this question from the brand point of view what's what's the one or two things they should really be thinking about now i think one of the key questions uh, brand owners should ask themselves is, uh, how do I want to come out of this on the other side? Now, appreciate we don't really have any certainty about when the other side will occur, but uh, at the same time, it's sort of trying to take actions now that will stand you in good stead in the future. So it's kind of connected to what Joy was saying in the sense that, you know, across multiple categories, behaviors are changing, people can't do what they were previously doing. And firstly, you've got to understand that, you know, to, to what extent has, has there been change within my category? You know, you can see how direct-to-consumer businesses have started to grow. They were growing beforehand, of course, but uh, and there are large brands that had within their sort of retail operations direct-to-consumer businesses. But this, um, again, is going to become more common, more popular with time. So, you know, can you um, develop your operations to actually support and support people who are now more likely to be at home through providing direct-to-consumer services. You have to think about perhaps how the occasions of use are going to change within your category as well as I was saying earlier. But again, you, you know, for brands, it's about thinking proactively and positively and creatively about what they can do, you know, so you can see how smartphone retailers um, had already to a certain extent started offering uh, refurbished devices, being able to sell your device back to your uh, operator, those kind of things. But I can see those now increasing and, and those kind of ideas that were starting to um, gain traction to, to actually grow in importance. So it, it's partly about the messaging that you send out there now and, and thinking proactively about, you know, how you can show that you care for, for the customers that you do have, but also being you know, creative, coming up with ideas. You know, we evaluate a lot of ideas as part of our business that we do with our clients. We're constantly sort of looking at and evaluating um, new products and new ideas. And th this is something that is going to become yet more important as we go forward because of the, the, the extent to which the situation has changed and how much behaviors have been impacted by this. You know, you've got to think creatively about what you do next and come up with new ideas and, you know, as much as possible, evaluate those before before you know you, you consider commercial launch um because you've really got no other choice and as always it's about staying as close to your customers as possible and i think moving as quickly as possible now 
nowadays mm. more than more than ever. I guess it's mm. the uh, to summarize everything. Yeah. Okay. Maybe well, if I can just add yeah. one other point. It just um, what Joy said and Matt talked a little bit about it also. But you know, the pandemic has certainly kind of jump started uh, a number of features and functionalities that people didn't kind of value uh, before, and uh, I think it's important for for uh, companies to understand what the role of some of these features will continue to be post-pandemic. And, and a couple of things come to mind. The first one is really the voice commands in the research that we did with people being very paranoid of touching surfaces. They're clamoring for this desire to communicate with devices uh, via voice commands. And so now uh, the challenge for companies is like looking at what are those compelling use cases for the devices and situations where people will continue to value this particular feature. Because we know it's 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 already been here on some of our devices, but the uh, the uptake is not as much as what I think uh, a lot of companies are wanting to. And the other thing that the, the second example, and I'm I'm gonna shut up after this, is a kind of like I had a, a great conversation with a company in the healthcare industry yesterday. Um, sharing with them some of the results. And what was one of the things that was interesting to them was this whole kind of spike we saw in the use of telemedicine. Again, you know, we know, I, I know this because we have clients in this industry for like the past five years, you know, we've done some kind of like concept, like, oh, how interested would you be? And people were not kind of like latching onto that concept. Because we can understand, right? The healthcare is something that's very personal. It's kind of like you build trust, and trust is usually built over kind of personal visits with your doctors. And and suddenly you're thrown into this situation where you have no option. I'm like, I can't get out, I can't go to a hospital, I can't go to a doctor's clinic. So what tools do I have? What options do I have? And what was interesting is that telemedicine, it almost like doubled, you know, during the pandemic, and that level is going to be sustained post-pandemic. So same number, it's something like 30%, a third, which I think is still relatively low. But if I tell you kind of like, we looked at different segments for people over 65 who, again, you know, I want to see my doctor. I don't want to get on the phone or see them on video. It increased fivefold. And that level will be sustained post-pandemic. So my point here is that, A, that experience needs to be really seamless, kind of easy for people to say, ah, oh, this isn't too bad at, at all, right? And then understanding how that would factor in the whole offer that you have and options, again, going back to the choices that people are making, I think it's critical for, for companies to understand what these features are, because there's no one, it's not going to be universal. It'll have to appeal to certain segments. So anyway, I just thought I, I could not leave this conversation without saying that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned telemedicine, because that's certainly an area we've been talking about for so many years. So I think that's a great place to bring the discussion to a close. And uh, thanks very much to all of you for sharing some great insights from the research. As always, there's a lot more we haven't talked about, uh, particularly the working from home topic and also changes in purchasing behavior across all sorts of products and services like travel, 
transport and consumer electronics. If you're interested in finding out more about the study, please visit strategyanalytics.com and explore our complementary research, or email me at dmercer at strategyanalytics.com and I'll point you in the right direction. And feel free to get in touch if you want to discuss the challenges you are facing and how strategy analytics can help you navigate the post-pandemic world. Thanks for listening, take care and stay safe. Thank you.